The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw that, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In the pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, the sermon's going to be the second half of our mini-series on the Rwandan genocide, drawing from a book by Emmanuel Katangoli titled Mirror to the Church. Last week, in the first half of the series, I began by explaining what happened in Rwanda back in 1994. And just a brief review for those who weren't here with us last week. 26 years ago, during the week after Easter, more than 800,000 Tutsis began to be slaughtered over a period of 100 days by the Hutus who were in power in Rwanda at the time. And while this is one of six genocides that occurred in the 20th century, what made it unique was at that time Rwanda was the most Christian nation in Africa at 85% Christian. And so the majority of these killings were Christian on Christian. And they were also personal, as the majority of the killings were carried out by the common people against their neighbors with machetes and clubs. In some instances, against people from their own church. So last week, we explored how on earth this could have happened. How could so many Christians so easily have become killers? And the conclusion put forth by the author Katangoli was that the stories of tribalism were more deeply embedded in the hearts of most Rwandan believers than the story of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And ironically, it was the same European missionaries who introduced the story of tribalism that became dominant. The same missionaries who brought the the gospel brought that story of tribalism. And when push came to shove, it turned out that the story of tribalism is the one the Rwandans had believed the most. But we were quick to note that this problem of believing secular stories, particularly tribalistic ones, 
believing them more deeply than the gospel, this problem is not unique to Rwandans or Africans. Rather, we as Americans are equally vulnerable to believing such stories more than the gospel. And so if we want to honor God and be a blessing to others, we must be reflective about not only the stories that inform our lives and how we live, but we need to be reflective about how we engage the world around us. And so this is what I want to explore in today's second part. Because there are three postures, Christian postures, of engaging the world, postures commonly taken up by Christians and how they choose to engage the world, three that Katangoli suggests were prevalent among believers in Rwanda in 1994. And yet rather than mitigating the genocide, these postures, and therefore these Christians, ended up being complicit in the genocide. So I want to talk about these three common Christian postures that proved to be deficient, and then I want to introduce you to a fourth alternative posture that Katangoli suggests can and did make a difference in 94, and discuss how we can cultivate that posture in our lives. So let's begin by considering three common postures Christians take for engaging the world around, that is, socially and politically and economically, And what you'll see is that each of these actually has some biblical basis and even some virtue to them. They're not all bad. But again, the Rwandan genocide exposed these postures as insufficient for faithfully engaging the world and ultimately even harmful. So the first Christian posture that Rwanda exposed as problematic is what Katangoli calls the pious posture. And the biblical model for this is found on your insert, your bulletin insert at the top. The biblical model for the pious posture is Simon of Cyrene, who is mentioned in St. Mark's telling of Jesus' passion. So to set up the context here, after Jesus had been whipped and was being led out of the city to be crucified, You recall he was too weak to carry his cross the whole way. And so the Roman soldiers compel Simon of Cyrene, who's just a passerby, they compel him to carry Jesus' cross for Jesus the rest of the way. And this was actually a common sort of thing in Jesus' day that Romans actually had the legal right to call on common people to do things like this. And citizens were legally required to oblige them. Plus, the soldiers had swords, so Simon's no dummy. Thus, Simon here displays the virtue of obedience. Simon is obedient. Simon gives of himself. He is he's sacrificial in a way that benefits another. In this case, it benefits Jesus. And one can charitably assume that Simon does so compassionately and sincerely. But what is deficient about Simon's posture is that Simon never stops to ask why Jesus is being crucified. He doesn't question the twisted authority that would kill the author of life. Indeed, the supposed virtue of this posture, obedience, prevents Simon from seeing that there are times when we are called to stand up against 
injustice and not bow to our earthly authorities. Well, we'll bring this to the day. In Western society, this pious posture tends to be the way of evangelical Protestantism, the way evangelical Protestants relate to political authority generally. In fact, Billy Graham is someone who would have exemplified this posture which holds that the gospel does have social implications, but that this impact on society only comes from the individuals whose lives are transformed by the gospel. Right. So often people with this pious posture seek to invite political leaders, people with power, into a personal relationship with Jesus, Right. believing that it would then have a trickle-down effect once these, once these political uh people have have a relationship with Jesus, that would then have a trickle-down effect on society. Well, as popular as this posture is among American Christians, this was actually the same posture taken by the white missionaries who first preached the gospel in Rwanda. They also believed in the trickle-down strategy of evangelism, you'll recall. Right? Last week we said that in the first half of the 20th century, the Europeans were successful in converting the king, right? And then they focused on educating and converting the Tutsis, who at the time were in power, right? They perceived those Tutsis to be the real influencers in society, so that's who they focused on with the gospel and hoping that it would have a trickle-down effect. And indeed, on the surface, it did, right? 85% Christian nation, everything's great. Combined with that, combined with that was the influence of the Belgians, right? In particular, the Belgian outlook encouraged that virtue of obedience we see inside. Right? But as we said, obedience is only good to a point. Unquestioning obedience to the state is not always a good thing. And it certainly wasn't in Rwanda. Katangoli writes, it's often said that Rwandans are very obedient and law-abiding citizens. When the voices of Hutu power told people to kill their neighbors, many of them obeyed without question. Even those who did not kill assumed that the genocide was an inevitable state of affairs and stood by watching. And when someone ordered them to kill, they stepped in as if they were following a script that could not be questioned. He says sometimes people would even apologize, telling neighbors they were sorry they had to kill them that they were only following orders from the government. Well, the second Christian posture that Rwanda exposed as problematic is what Katangoli calls the political posture. And he suggests this posture is exemplified by an officer from John chapter 18, also on your insert. So in the chronology of Jesus' passion, this passage backs us up about a half a day, right, from the Simon of Cyrene time, to when Jesus is still under the control of uh, of the Jews, right? The Jewish temple guard, and the high priest is questioning him about his disciples and his teaching. And the officer, who's going to be mentioned in verse 22, he was a member of the temple guard, which was essentially a local Jewish police force permitted by the Romans to maintain order in Jerusalem. In fact, it was the temple guard, not the Romans, of course, who originally arrested Jesus in the garden, 
right? So clearly, we can assume that members of the temple guard, just by being, by virtue of being part of the temple guard, they would have believed in a religious faith that is politically engaged, right? Just by being Jews who'd signed up to be on the temple guard. And this outlook parallels believers today who believe that the church should use the power that is available to do the most good possible, very much including political power. But this, politi- this particular officer of the temple guard also displays the supposed virtue of this posture, which is loyalty to those in power. As he takes issue with the way Jesus answers the high priest in verses 20 and 21. In verse 22, he slaps Jesus across the face, saying, is that how you answer the high priest, somebody in power? So, paralleling this, when Christians take this sort of posture today, they're offended by anyone who disrespects the recognized authority, or or questions loyalty to the stars and bars, or democratic ideals. But such loyalty means that they tend to assume the tenets of democracy uncritically, as if democracy is God-ordained, while being blind to its dark side. As we said, these types of postures can seem innocent enough, but... An atrocity like Rwanda exposes them for their reality, right? So an example of this in Rwanda would be the archbishops, the archbishop who sat on the government's ruling council throughout the genocide. Or the priest who stood aside when militants came to search their churches for Tutsi parishioners or refugees. But also globally in the West, This would include the scores of Christian leaders who didn't have the courage to challenge the Clinton administration for refusing to use the word genocide to refer to what was happening in Rwanda, since under the United Nations Genocide Convention, that would have required the U.S. to intervene. So that's the political posture. Finally, a third Christian posture that was proven insufficient by Rwanda was what Katangoli identifies as the pastoral posture, which is exemplified by Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus' death, right? after Jesus has died in John 19. So even though no life remained in Jesus' tortured body, Joseph of Arimathea, he still wants to honor the Lord by caring for his body, his remains. So Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for permission to take Jesus' body. And it's granted, and he and Nicodemus give Jesus the burial treatment that those in those days would have been reserved for a very honorable person or a king. So even though Jesus has been killed like a criminal, they bury him like a king. So Joseph exhibits the pastoral posture's virtue, which is compassion. We can just picture how gingerly and lovingly he would have handled Jesus' body, cared for it. But as noble as this may seem, Katangoli observes there is no mention of Joseph or Nicodemus asking why Jesus has been killed or who would do this to their Lord. 
They've just accepted that it's just the way the world. Thus, in addition to exemplifying the virtue of this posture, which is compassion, they also exhibit this posture's deficiency, which is meeting people's needs without asking too many questions. Meeting people's needs without asking too many questions. And the church often takes this posture corporately of, or, and teaches our people, right, to do many wonderful things, building schools, running hospitals, soup kitchens, refugee camps. But, to do, but what happens is in practice, this is done in a silent partnership with the state, which kind of accepts this arrangement where they do their job and we'll do ours. So where the pious posture is unquestioningly, the first one is unquestioningly obedient, this third posture extends compassion without asking too many questions. And an extreme example of this from Rwanda, and this is extreme, would be the priest, the priest who would serve communion to the members of their parishes while those parishioners were taking a break from killing to attend worship service, give them communion. But again, Christians in the West are frequently probably most frequently encouraged and trained by the church to take up this pastoral posture of meeting the immediate needs of people without asking too many questions. Right? I get that. I mean, I'm guilty. Right? Now, Katangoli readily admits that, that biblical justification for each of these postures exists, right? Even beyond these figures we've looked at from Jesus' passion. And he also concedes that these postures may lead to some good, right? Especially in the near term or single situation. But what the Rwandan genocide exposed was that while a small modicum of good may come from these postures, they can also, these postures can also cause or enable at the same time an even greater level of harm that far outweighs the good they're accomplishing. Because these postures tend to go along with the anti-kingdom stories that dominate our society. So one way the Rwandan genocide is a helpful mirror to the church all over the globe is the way it begs for an alternative Christian posture to these three. To one that can truly make a difference. And Katangoli suggests this posture exists. This posture is found in the passage included as our gospel today. Not too long before Jesus' passion, he and his disciples are having dinner when they're interrupted by an unnamed woman. Though John's gospel seems to identify this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But this woman comes up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and pours it on Jesus' head as he's reclined at table. Well, Jesus' disciples are indignant, right? Saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Katangoli observes that this woman has not only disrupted social norms, economic assumptions, to her, to them, her behavior is crazy, and it's, it's also a politically loaded behavior. 
As he suggests, and other scholars have as well, that Mary assumes a prophetic posture, anointing Jesus to be king of her people. People have often seen parallels in what Mary or the woman has done here with what we see Samuel doing when he shockingly anoints the shepherd boy David, as we saw in our first lesson today. Right? He says no to the first who everybody expects to be king, and he wants you know, God wants David. Though Mary has not been given the authority to do this, Katangoli says she dares to question the social, economic, and political assumptions of her day with a single act. And just listen to his description of how powerful this action is. He says, without attempting to win influence over anyone, she's not, Mary has forced everyone in that room to check their own assumptions. Without grasping for political power, she's not, she's pledged her allegiance to God's kingdom. Without accepting the system that would put Jesus to death, she's nevertheless prepared his body for burial, right? The double meaning there. What she meant for coronation also serves as final preparation, as Jesus says in verse 12. And like Joseph of Arimathea, Mary does the pastoral work of preparing Jesus' body. It's just that she does it before Jesus dies. Well, it's notable that Mary's disruptive action also reflects the posture of Jesus' own ministry in ways that the other postures don't. As with Jesus coming in the world, right? As that happened, God was taking on a body and disrupting the economic and social and political norms of the day, or of every day. And he changed the world not through cheap talk or grasping for worldly power, but he changed it with his life, with his way of being, with his very body. Katangoli contends that this sort of prophetic posture can interrupt, that's what can interrupt the anti-kingdom stories and norms of society in a way the other three postures are powerless to. Of course, skeptics might say, well, this is great, great for this lady, you know, hero of, of the Gospels, but this is unrealistic. Well, the problem with that cynicism is that Katangoli cites quite a few instances of people living out this very prophetic posture in Rwanda in 1994 and it making all the difference in the lives of some. The most well-known to us is probably the hotel manager named Paul who was the subject of that movie, Hotel Rwanda. He sheltered hundreds of Tutsis and moderate Hutus, meaning Hutus that refused to be involved in the killing. He sheltered hundreds of them by welcoming them as guests in his hotel, assigning them rooms and treating them like his usual international clientele. And then he used his words to negotiate with the enemy in order to preserve all of these people and keep them safe. And yet far from idealism, when asked how he was able to do this, Paul consistently answered, he doesn't understand why everyone couldn't have done what he did. He wasn't wearing a cape.
So Katangoli is suggesting that for Christians to seek to engage the world like Mary with, with a prophetic posture, that that's, that that's critical for us to ensure we aren't causing more harm than good when we're trying to bless people. So how then might we do this? How can we seek to honor God and bless others with a prophetic posture? Well, this is where I want to wrap up today's sermon and this whole mini-series. By sharing some of Katangoli's suggestions for how we can move away from the insufficient witnesses of pious, political, and pastoral postures and begin cultivating a prophetic one. I'm going to just give a few of his suggestions. First of all, Katangoli suggests that we embrace what will seem to the world like a confused identity. Confused identity. He says this is the identity that's actually bestowed on us at baptism, right? When our identity gets mixed up with Christ in a way that supersedes our race, our class, our gender, our nationality, and so on. It's not that that these worldly categories are erased about us, right? But like Mary, these categories take a back seat. They don't influence our posture toward the world the way our allegiance to Jesus does. So that's the first way, embracing the confused or confusing to the world identity Jesus has bestowed upon us. Second, And perhaps to the surprise of some, Katangoli suggests that the church's focus should be primarily local. Local. You see, too often throughout the church's history, its zeal for international mission work has sprung from a belief, the false belief, that we're good here. It's over there that needs help. Right? America, we got it made in the shade, right? We're first world, right? We have iPhones. They actually have iPhones in Africa now too, by the way. Right, but this false belief that, that we don't have nearly the level of problems in a first world country like America that they do in third world countries, right? Well, the problem with that is that the problems of the world start in here, in human hearts, So I'd say we're pretty much in the same situation. But nonetheless, with that false mentality, we want to swoop in on our white horse and help them, bestowing our prosperous way of life and sprinkling in a little Jesus on these left's advanced society. But again, like we talked about last week, we're just as susceptible to living according to anti-kingdom stories as anybody anywhere else in the globe. Right? I mean, did you watch the news this week? Tribalism is is a big problem here. Big on every side. Right? And such a mentality, right, this mentality that we're good here, so we'll go help there, The problem is it's likely to bear a lot more bad fruit than good. I mean, it certainly did in Rwanda, right? While the Western world's congratulating itself for an 85% Christianized nation, right? Not taking responsibility for that genocide, though, right? 
Whoops. So it's not that we shouldn't ever engage in foreign missions, but maybe a lot of it is about what our goal is. And Captain Goley suggests the primary goal should not be providing aid, all right, humanitarian assistance, or even partnership. It's not that that can't happen, but that can't be the primary goal. Rather, the primary goal needs to be the establishment of friendships. All right? Which, think about how different that dynamic is. It's not this hierarchical, I'm better than you and let me help poor little you out. It's, we are all desperately in need of grace in the gospel. And I want to get to know you. And get to know how maybe that gospel could, could fit into your life and your perspectives. Right? So, so friendships that aren't aimed merely at conversion, but at full relational discipleship, seeking for, for quality, not quantity. Right? Quality meaning the transformation of hearts and lives, not just checking the box of, I prayed a little prayer when the super evangelist came through my town, which doesn't do jack, if that's all there is. Now, a third encouragement from Katangoli is that we seek to cultivate what he calls wild spaces. That's a weird thing. Well, this is a concept he's borrowed from another theologian. Wild spaces, according to him, are any ways that our life experience as an individual doesn't line up with our culture's vision of the good life. So reflecting on our own lives... What are way, what's a way or ways that our life or our experience, our situation doesn't line up with what you see in the commercials will happen if you drink Sprite or whatever? So this could be an illness or disability, right? It could be survive, being a survivor of trauma or the survivor of a death of a loved one. It could, it could be a person who's lost a job. It could be a struggle with addiction or depression, right? Or it could just be characteristics that aren't so negative necessarily, but that marginalize us in society in some way, such as if we're a racial minority or from another country, or if there's some way that our life doesn't match up with the two-and-a-half-kid picket fence idyllic American life. Captain Golik encourages us to kind of figure out what these wild spaces might be for us because he suggests these are actually opportunities for the world to witness God bringing abundance to us even in these areas of emptiness or need. These are kind of the, the, the cutting edge of where we can have a true effective witness to the world around because it's a chance for them to see the goodness of God turning our water into wine. That we can be content and we can thrive and even glorify Him despite these circumstances we do. But Captain Gole also exhorts us communally, right, as a church to embrace being a wild space, right? Maybe we should change our little slogan to that. Like, St. Matthias, a wild space. We'll be like, whoa, did y'all get your liquor license? I mean, you know, people wouldn't know what to do with that, I don't think. What he means by this is that too often the church is fixated these days on being relevant. Right? You hear all the time, relevant. How can we be relevant? 
And the, these, those earlier postures can do this, right? The pious posture makes us want to be, us as the church, be where things are happening, right? To meet the spiritual needs of people right in the crisis situation or, or to, to meet people's spiritual needs that they don't even know they have by doing these evangelistic crusades and, and telling them about their need and then meeting it, right? The political posture believes Christians ought to position ourselves in places that influence and shape society, right? All about relevance. But again, the mirror that Rwanda forces us to acknowledge is that when Christians do that, when we seek to make a difference in this way, it's not actually always for the better. Sometimes we make things worse. So instead, he suggests the church is better off carving out a place that's not beholden. Like what would make this a wild space is if this was a parish that wasn't beholden to the narratives of our dominant culture. We're individuals where you could come and gather and have the narratives that you've been hearing, right, six and a half days out of the week, interrupted and weekly through the liturgy and the word and the Eucharist and the fellowship, have your identity kind of remixed up with Jesus. This leads to the final suggestion Captain Gulling makes, and that he says that, that being on the margins, if we are, if the church is to kind of be on the margins, not where it's at, he says that that means when it comes to our mentality of, the, of how we engage the world as believers, that he suggests we should abandon strategies, a mentality of strategy or mentality of tactics. Trade a mentality of strategy for tactics. And I think, what are we talking about here? Well, Captain Gloy explains that strategies are the approach of the powerful, while tactics are the wisdom of the weak about how to survive in a world that they don't own. See, often the church has sought to devise these ambitious strategies, you know teaming up with Bono to solve world hunger or evangelizing whole countries and continents, right? I mean, super grandiose ambitions, right? But if we're honest about the results of those strategies, the results have in best cases been mixed, and in the worst cases, you have Rwanda, right? They've been disastrous. Even more than that, though, just as an individual, I don't know if I'm the only one here who feels this way, but when the church is pushing these enormous goals like winning Asia for Jesus, seriously, it, it, to me, it, it can leave individual believers feeling like, what, what, how could I possibly contribute to that? It's so grandiose. What could I do to actually make a difference, Right? I guess I'm saying that sometimes the goal set can feel too big for us to feel like we can really participate in it. Right? And so we have to leave it to Bono. Right? I like Bono, by the way. Like I, you too. I like that music. <clears throat> but when the church surrenders the idols of relevance and power and embraces being on the margins, Katangoli suggests this frees us up to do the work of God's kingdom in the world in a different way from a place of weakness through tactical wisdom rather than strategy. Indeed, 
Katangoli suggests that we should understand the teachings of Jesus as tactics. Think about this. For, take Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek makes no sense as a strategy of the powerful. What do you mean turn the other cheek? I'm going to bring my tanks in and deal with this. Right? Makes no sense. Right? But if we're seeking to make a difference in the world from a place of weakness, turn the other cheek makes all the, makes all the sense in the world. Right? On an individual level, tactics, they may not have converted a whole nation, these tactics Jesus put forth, but choosing to go two miles with the Roman soldier who forces you to go one, that could get the attention of that one soldier and change his life. That's doable. Right? I don't need Bono for that. Captain Goli explains tactics depend on the art of improvi- improvisation. When situations change, tactics change with them, right? For example, Paul, the hotel manager, right? He didn't have a strategy. Instead, he used tactics. Captain Goli says he stepped into the deep brokenness of the world. He just started talking and he figured out what faithfulness meant as he went along. Maybe God's calling us to do that. To get, get in relationship with people and figure out, even give ourselves permission to make a mistake in how we do it, figure out how to, how to make a difference how, what faithfulness looks like as we go along in that relationship. Now, perhaps some of these approaches uh, I'm relaying from Compton Gully for, for cultivating a prophetic posture, perhaps some of these seem a little ambiguous. I, I feel like they are. Right? If the notion of living with a confused identity or or discerning the wild spaces in your life. If that hasn't clicked, right, you're probably not alone here, right? I'm sure some of you are like, how do I do that? What is that? And here's why. I think these are concepts we need to sit with. These are concepts we need to meditate on, that we need to, to pray about and ask the Lord to give us wisdom about. And that may be what's required if we desire to honor God and bless others without being complicit in their harm. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.